Well, thank you for joining me as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis. I'm Randy Duncan, and in this episode, we'll be covering verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. So whether you downloaded the podcast on purpose or you just happened to stumble upon us, thank you for joining. Now, as a recap, last time we talked about the earth being without form and void and what that was all about. And I briefly mentioned and explained what the gap theory was. We also discussed what is meant by darkness being over the face of the deep. And then finally, we discussed the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now, if you recall, last time I mentioned that starting in this episode, some of us may need to keep in mind that the only barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. And so, with that being said, we begin in verse 3, which reads, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, where in the world do we even start to analyze this seemingly simple verse that so many people have heard before? Well, first of all, the Bible makes it clear right here that creation is not a part of God as is suggested in pantheism or some new age or spiritual religion. It is a product of his personal will. Notice that it said, and God said, let there be light. He created it with the power of his word. He is separate from the creation. He transcends his creation. And so as we go through each creation day when we get there, notice that they all begin with, and God said. The universe didn't come into being without the personal will and the intelligence and the information from God. Now there are two or three different ways to approach all of creation week. Now, in this study and in an effort to make progress in going through the book, I don't want to get bogged down in covering all of the subtleties involved in each of these perspectives. I'll just make a quick note or two as we go along just to introduce you to a couple of different perspectives. But I'll focus on two primary perspectives as we go along Creation Week. Now, for our purposes here and in this study, I want to simply introduce you to what I feel are two primary ways people interpret Creation Week And then leave it up to you to study and to read and decide for yourself which makes more sense. And I think it's important for us to remember Acts 17.11 here, which tells us that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And I think we should do the same. You should do the same. Apply that now. Don't believe anything just because I say it, just because you hear it in a podcast. Yes, listen with eagerness, but then you go, you search the scriptures, you do your own research to prove whether those things are true. And that actually applies to more than just this Bible study. I mean, that's a lesson we can apply to our daily lives. Hear a person out, but then do your own research to determine if what they say is true. I mean, we could all do that with the news media and social media that we're bombarded with all day, every day. You know, Aristotle once said that it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Or to put it in another, maybe more modern way, as Ronald Reagan said, trust, but verify. And so the two perspectives I'm going to mention as we progress through Creation Week are what are sometimes referred to as a young earth perspective and an old earth perspective. Now there is another model or another way to interpret creation week that's called the framework hypothesis perspective, but I'm simply making a conscious decision to not spend time on that model as I don't think the vast majority of people hold to that view, 
But more importantly, I think the model is interesting. Maybe parts of it could be true. But even if it is true, it still must incorporate one of the other two views that I'm going to focus on. And so very briefly, just by way of introduction here, when I say young earth perspective, I mean the thought that the Genesis creation account is interpreted as God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in it in a literal six-day period. Six 24-hour days, and based on adding the genealogies that are described in the Bible, that the earth is somewhere between six to 10,000 years old. In the old earth perspective, what I mean is the perspective that God created over a much longer period of time than those six literal 24-hour days. In fact, millions or billions of years. You see, old earth creationists interpret the quote days of creation as eras or epochs in time, long periods of time. Now, I'll probably discuss that in more detail later, and I'll most likely end up doing a video comparing those two at some point, but I just wanted to introduce those two terms to you. Now, right off, I want to clarify that if a person holds to an old earth perspective, it does not mean that they necessarily subscribe to evolution. It does not mean necessarily that they believe in what we would call monkeys-to-man evolution. Some of them do. They're called theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists. But that's a different presentation for a different study. But the good news? Regardless of which way you interpret these verses, it has no impact on your position in Jesus Christ. It's not critical to your salvation. It doesn't determine whether you get into heaven. Only your position and relationship to Jesus Christ does that. And so this question and this topic, this young earth and old earth debate, it's more of an in-house debate among Christians. And for these types of debates and these conversations, we should learn to have some grace and flexibility with one another. And I mentioned last time that Augustine had a good way to approach any topic like this, which was that in essential doctrine, we should have unity. In non-essential topics, we should have the liberty to explore different approaches, and in all things, we should be charitable with one another. And so now, with all of that said, back to verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, shouldn't there already be light? I mean, didn't God already create the heavens and the earth back in verse 1? Remember, the heavens and the earth refers to all of physical reality. So, shouldn't that include light? My answer is yes. Light was already created back there in verse 1. Remember, verse 1's a summary statement, and now we're going to go through some specifics of how God created. Now, the Hebrew word used in this phrase is hayah. It doesn't mean that something new came into existence for the first time. And so maybe a better way to say it in English is to become or to come to pass. In other words, let light be. And right here, is where your perspective on the age of the earth might impact how you interpret these next few verses. The young earth perspective is one that believes that this is where the light began to exist. Because remember, if you believe God did not create over a long period of time, then light needs to be something different than what is produced by the stars, including our sun. Why? Because the stars haven't been created yet. The stars and sun aren't created until day four. So, what is this light if it's not the light created by the sun? 
Some would argue that since the sun hasn't been created yet and it won't be until day four, that this is teaching us that God is the ultimate source of light. And perhaps there is some truth in this because we know Revelation teaches that in heaven there will be no need for the sun as God's glory will provide light. Now, in an old earth interpretation, meaning God created over a long period of time, when God says, let there be light, the interpretation is one from the perspective of an observer here on the earth when light first became visible. And so let me break that down a little more because it's crucial to understand. Notice how in verse 2, God was hovering above the waters. So what is the frame of reference here? The frame of reference is from the earth, above the waters. So where is God hovering? Above the waters, here on earth. And so when the verse says, let there be light, an old earth interpretation means, let there be light visible for the first time here on earth. As an observer on earth, for the first time, you could see the light of the sun. You could see light, but not the source of the light. You still could not see the sun itself. Now, prior to this creative act of God, remember that, quote, darkness was over the face of the waters. The earth was covered in a thick blanket of dust and debris and a very thick atmosphere. It was opaque, so thick that the light from the sun could not even penetrate it. It was dark. And over time, it went from opaque to translucent, where you could begin to see light. I mean, think of a very cloudy day. You can't see the sun. You can't see the source of the light. But you can still see outside because some of the light penetrates the cloud cover. Job 38 verse 9 tells us that God, in speaking to Job regarding the creation, says that when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. So God here is telling Job that he covered the earth in darkness and covered it with clouds. Light broke through so as to be visible from earth's surface for the first time. Eventually, the translucent sky would give way to overcast skies and then breaks in the clouds that blanketed the earth. Because keep in mind that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all of physical reality, and that included the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, etc. They've already been created. And we'll speak more about the sun, moon, and stars when we get to day four. And so this phrase, let there be light, has two primary interpretations. One, God created light as something different from the light we receive from the sun, or the light from the sun already existed, but was just now becoming visible from the earth. But verses 4 and 5 continue, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is very interesting. If there was not a sun yet, then how could there be day and night? I mean, where was the light coming from? I mean, the whole reason we have day and night and evening and morning is due to the light of the sun and the rotation of the earth. And so this is some further evidence that the sun had already been created back in verse 1 when God created the heavens and the earth prior to day 4, which we'll talk about more when we get there. And so to argue that the sun still had not been created and won't be created until day four, then you have to come up with another source for the light, a source that would have the same day-night effect as the sun does. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, when it says there was evening and morning the first day, what exactly does it mean by day? 
This is a big deal right here. This is a big question in the whole young earth, old earth debate. Day in the Hebrew is the word yom. And like many Hebrew nouns, yom has several different meanings depending upon the context in which it's used. So for example, yom has four literal definitions. It can literally mean any of the following. A literal 24-hour period, all of the daylight hours, part of the daylight hours, or a long period of time. And we see that yom is used in all four of these ways in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first time is right here in Genesis 1-5, where it says God called the light day and the darkness he called night. That means yom here is referring only to the daylight hours, and so it cannot be a 24-hour period. The next use of yom we should look at is found in the account on the seventh day, the Sabbath. There's no mention of evening and morning here. We know that God ceased from his creation on that day, but how long was that day? How long has God ceased from his creative acts? Some would argue that he ceased his creative acts and is still ceasing. He's still resting. In other words, we are still in God's seventh day, his Sabbath rest. Now, of course, that doesn't mean God ceased his other works, such as salvation and upholding the universe, etc. But finally, in Genesis 2-4, it says that in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, obviously, day there, yom, is referring to a longer time period than one 24-hour period because we know he took six days to create. And so yom, in this sense, is referring to an indefinite amount of time. And we even use the word day like that in our modern language. I mean, this would be sort of like me saying that back in his day, Peyton Manning was a good quarterback. Now, we don't mean he was a good quarterback for just one day. We mean that he was a good quarterback for a certain period of time. But the bottom line is this. The Hebrew word used for day, yom, is used in various ways and it has four literal definitions. And we have to take into consideration the grammar that's used, the sentence structure, and the context in which it's used to determine what the author intended to communicate. In the next episode, we'll discuss the creation of the firmament or expanse and what that's all about, as well as the seas, the dry land, and maybe even some plants. But I'll leave you with this thought for now. Please keep in mind that what we discuss about Creation Week and the conclusions that you arrive at, that doesn't change your position in Christ. When you die, God's not going to ask you if you were an old earth or a young earth creationist or whether you aced a test on Genesis chapter 1. The only thing that will matter on that day is your position and your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you? Or have you not accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Because at the end of the day, that's the only question you need to get right. And I pray your answer will be yes. 